Welcome to Kid You Not Podcast, the podcast on children's literature for everyone. And if you think children's literature is not for you, think again. We hope to change your mind over the next few episodes. I'm Lauren. And I'm Clementine. And together, we'll talk to you about children's literature, but not as you think you know it. We want to show you that children's literature is really relevant to you. I'm a PhD student in children's literature. And I work in publishing. Often, the literary analysis side and the publishing side of children's books are left separate, but in this podcast we're going to draw them together and show you just how interesting children's books and their production can be. Not just for children, not just for parents, teachers and librarians, but for everyone. And please go onto our blog, kidyounotpodcast.com, and ask us questions and give us your opinion and read extra posts on lots of different subjects. Today, we're going to discuss one of the sentences that we hear the most when we talk about good children's books to other adults, and that sentence is, Surely that's that's not a children's children's book. This is our response. And we're going to start with a little game today. We're going to read you two extracts from two books. And you have to guess which one is the adult's book and which one is the child's book, or at least which one publishes think is for adults and which one publishers think is for children. First extract. Me. I saw where the dead boy got killed. The blood was everywhere. Dean. I wish I'd seen it. Lydia. I don't want to see it. Me. Yes you do. You're only vexed because you didn't see it. It was like a river. You could even swim in it. Lydia. Advise yourself. I even wanted to jump in it like a fish. If I held my breath long enough, I could dive right down to the bottom, and if I came up again and I was still alive, it would be like the dead boy was still here. He could be my heir, or the light I saw when I opened my eyes again. I held my breath and tried to feel my blood going round. I couldn't even feel it. If I knew my blood was going to run out in five minutes, I'd just fill that five minutes with all my favourite things. I'd eat a hell of Chinese rice and do a cloud piss and make Agnes laugh with my funny face. The one where I make my eyes go crooked and stick my tongue right up my nose. At least if you know, you could be ready. It's not fair otherwise. Thank you, Lauren. Here's the second extract. We want to have babies, and they're going to be clean babies. Lily was still jacking up when she was pregnant. She always used to go on about being a good mother, and so did everyone around her. But how can you be a good mother on smack? And jacking up when she was breastfeeding, I've seen her. All the veins in her arms and behind her knees have gone where she's poked around with a needle so much. So she injects into the veins between her breasts. I've seen her sitting with the baby on the breast, poking around to find a vein. Nice fat veins when your tits are big and milky, she said. And no one said a word. This junk. You think, if you don't say the truth, the truth somehow doesn't exist, you fool yourself. If anyone suggested to Lily she was doing a bad thing to her baby, she'd go mad. But she knows. Thank you very much, Clementine. Okay, so now try and guess which of these books is marketed for adults and which of these books is marketed for teenagers. Well, you might be surprised to hear, unless you've read both of these books, that the first extract was from a recent book called Pigeon English by Stephen Kelman. Which was definitely released for adults and not at all for children, as the author was kind enough to inform Clementine when she met him recently. Absolutely, and the second book is called Junk, written by Melvin Burgess, and it is clearly a teenage book. 
Pigeon English is about 11-year-old Harry, who is a recent Ghanaian immigrant to a poverty-stricken area of London, and how he inadvertently gets sucked up into the world of gang culture and knife crime. And Junk by Melvin Burgess is about um, two adolescents um, who are suddenly taken into a sort of community of, um, of junkies, um, and they become addicted to all sorts of drugs. It's a very dark book. And uh, it describes their lives and the deaths of some of their, um, some of the main characters, um, in this very very grim environment of drugs. And it is worth pointing out, isn't it, Clementine, that although Pigeon English has been very successful, it did not cause the same sort of stir that Junk did when it was released. Yeah. Critics, um, a whole army of parents were up in arms that this sort of book was aimed at children. How could prostitution and drugs be forced down children's throats in this way? It was a pivotal moment in children's books. So one of the things that differentiates these two books, obviously, is that the intention of the author in Pigeon English is clearly to write for an adult audience who would understand through the character of the little 11-year-old boy that we're talking about a world of violence and death and danger, even though it is seen through the innocent eyes of a child. On the other hand, in Junk, Melvin Burgess explores the effect of poverty, drugs, prostitution, through the eyes of a child that is actively engaging in all these corrupting influences. All the characters take drugs and become involved in the culture, whereas throughout the whole of Pigeon English, the child narrator, Harry, is never involved in what's going on. He only witnesses it, and even he doesn't understand what is going on. The adult reader interprets events through his eyes. Yeah. So what's interesting there is that we have a really paradoxical exchange going on there, which is that in junk everything is presented at face value, all the horror and danger of drug taking is presented very graphically. Um, whereas what we get in this adult book that is Pigeon English is this interesting preservation of the childhood innocence of Harry, the narrator. Um, and this the very adult-centred view, um, which is why it is an adult book, it's because adults like to think of children as very innocent beings, even if they're plunged in a world of violence and danger. It seems like it's almost impossible to say, reading, you know, two extracts chosen from this teenage book and this adult book, it seems like it's almost impossible to say that one is a children's book and that one is an adult book. Yes, because the lines between them are just so blurred if you were told about them individually and had no concept of who they were aimed at i would have guessed they were aimed at a very similar age group why does it surprise adults so much to hear books like lots of adults are not aware at how graphic many young adult novels are yeah i think that's a very um common misconception lots of adults think that children's literature and that teenage literature um, is generally quite rosy and uh, full of very moral values. Whereas in fact that's absolutely not the case. Have a look at modern children's literature, have a look at modern teenage literature, and you might be very surprised to find that actually absolutely every single theme under the sun is explored. Anything incest? Yeah, well we've got incest, prostitution, rape... Drugs? <laughs> Drugs. 
gang culture, knife crime. Kidnapping. So basically, what we hope to have shown in this little introduction is that the boundary between teenage literature and adult literature is much, much more porous than you might imagine. And in fact, what we're witnessing at the moment in children's publishing and in children's literature in general is that very often it seems like everyone is very ambivalent about where some books stand. And the publishing industry, I think, is looking at this and doing specific strategies to sell children's books to adults and vice versa. We think that this phenomenon can be traced back to the publication of Harry Potter. Harry Potter! Clementine's favourite book, which um, originally was just published as a children's book, and as everyone might know, it wasn't particularly successful to start with, and it was a success due to word of mouth. But quite soon after the series began to take off and really sell a lot of copies, so we'd be talking about the third book, publishers noticed that a lot of adults were reading it and a lot of adults were passing it on and recommending it to their friends. So for the fourth book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, it was released in both an adult edition and a child's edition, the only difference being the covers. Yes, and from I mean, from the angle of visual analysis, it's really interesting to look at both covers of the the, the cover of the adult edition and the cover of the children's edition because obviously what what happens in the adult edition is that it's all black and white, it's all um, photographs, and um, you know it doesn't have like nice sparkly magic wands and other strange creatures. It's much more you know, much more serious than that, much more sober. Whereas when you look at the cover of the child's edition, if any of you remember them, because they don't sell them anymore, that's full of cartoons, they're very brightly coloured. The original movie merchandise was all based on these illustrations. Yeah, and what's interesting now with Harry Potter is that they've become sort of modern classics. And have a look at the most recent edition of Harry Potter. Their theme of modern classics is really all over the cover. Um, well, they're very white and clean, the covers of the new ones. They are, but have you noticed that they have this kind of creamy look of uh, old manuscripts, as if they were already printed on older paper? Oh, no, yeah. I haven't. If you, if you look at them, they're like that, and you can see that the corner is a bit, like, looks like it's torn, as if it's been read many, many times. And yeah, the drawing style on it is very much like a sort of modernization of these drawings that you would see in old fairy tale editions. So now they seem to be for adults and children, although they're still published by Bloomsbury Children's Books. The covers are much less children centric and much more welcoming to an adult readership, or, you know, an adult would feel much more comfortable reading them on the train. Yeah, and that's what we call crossover literature. Um, that is to say, literature that in a way can be read by adults and by children, that is, regardless of age. And this is not at all an innocent concept. You might think that it's just you know, a publishing concept that is easier to categorize in this way, but actually it means a lot about who you as an adult are if you try and read these crossover books, and what you think of children if you read these crossover books. What does it mean that there are so many books now which are published with different covers, one for children, one for adults, for example, example, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon is one of the most famous, but also The Dreamer by Ian McEwan. 
how I live now where I make Rosa? Well, aside from the cynical point of view that publishers are trying to maximise their audience and their fair revenue enough, by publishing both adults <laughs> and children's <laughs> editions, um, my personal theory is that publishers recognise that a lot of these stories are just good stories, regardless of whatever age you are. And it's only when social convention steps in that adults might feel uncomfortable reading a book that they think is for children. So what does it mean about adults that they have such a really ambiguous relationship to children's literature? Seriously, I mean, whenever I say that I study children's literature, what I'm generally told is that, you know, it's not interesting, it's not real literature, it's all cute and full of bunnies. It's generally disregarded. And, you know, I don't know how it works in publishing. I guess because children's literature makes a lot of money, it's not as disregarded <laughs> in, in, in general publishing, is it? No, not anymore. It's one of the most profitable sections thanks of publishing to, to be in it. Thanks to J.K. Rowley. Yes, thank you, J.K. <laughs> But, um, so it's interesting because the way I see it, um, adults who read children's literature now and who feel that they have to hide it behind covers that are especially designed for people like them, I think they suffer for, from a very uh, interesting complex, which is that they are, you know, I don't know if you've heard that term adolescence, that is to say they are adults but at the same time still adolescents, they see themselves as on a path of discovery of themselves, of their identity, even though they might be 30 or 40 or 50. And actually, um, Meg Rosev, who wrote um, How I Live Now, came to Cambridge last year to give a talk during conference. And she said that that's how she perceives herself. She perceives herself as a young adult and she writes the books that she would need as an adult. And I think this is a big change as well. Like now adults are freer to see themselves as being on a path rather than having arrived in, in adulthood. So they see these books as appealing to them. And yet, I think there is this other part that you were talking about, the social side of it, sort of the superego of it, which is that it's still not acceptable to be reading these books. No, and that is weird when you take into account what you, say, what you were saying about adolescence, that people are growing up later and later these days Obviously, there was a lot of arguments that that's because um, the workplace is not the same. People's lives are much more... Much longer. Well, much longer, but like a job isn't for life anymore. You tend to have a lot more jobs when you're young. You, there's no pressure to decide what you want to do forever at 21 anymore. You can do seven different things before you're 30. But that doesn't change the fact that you don't settle down generally until much later so really you are living an extended adolescence right up until your mid-30s these days yeah. so it's no surprise really that adolescent literature which tends to focus on growth and the journey from immaturity to maturity is so read by those in their 20s and 30s because many of them are still undergoing these transformative experiences yeah. because they're still in the middle stage of their life when they're not children but they haven't settled down yet. Yeah. And importantly, I mean, it's important to repeat here that these books are actually good. They're good books. We're not trying to say here in any form of disparaging way that adults today are still children. Um, we are saying that these books are good and they do answer specific needs that the modern adult may have. And yet, there's still this, yeah, this social pressure of not being seen with childish books in your hand. And I think that's what publishers cash in. Oh, definitely. And there's a big argument that with the rise of e-readers, people can be much less 
bothered about this kind of thing because if you're just reading freedom. yeah freedom because no one can see the cover of the book you're reading and unless someone happens to have memorized every page of harry potter they can't uh-huh. yeah we yeah we don't doubt them <laughs> but um people can't tell what you're reading unless they happen to recognize specific character names when they read over your shoulder it's on the, the tube secret freedom of the kindle it is or the modern version of your story of the man reading twilight absolutely um i have a little anecdote like that i, I was i was in the metro in paris one day and uh a very elegant man was sitting next to me reading what I thought was the history of the French Revolution. And actually, when I looked at what he was reading inside the jacket, it was Twilight Eclipse. <laughs> um, clearly, the superego there was kind of rebelling against the person's um, decision to read this and thought that they had, to hi- they had to hide it under a very much more acceptable form of literature. So here, what we see is that there's... Um, a difference between the intention of the author, the intention of the publisher, perhaps, and the um, eventual audience that these books appeal to. And um, um, I think it's quite interesting because, obviously, um, in literary criticism, Roland Barthes, who is a French literary critic, talked about the intentional fallacy, what he saw as um, as a conflict in criticism between the author's intention in writing the book and the critic's opinion of the book. That is to say, the critic should just get rid of any form of judgment um, drawn from you know, biographical information or information from interviews of the author and just see criticism as a completely independent activity. The author is dead in the world. Whereas as a publisher, I would say that you cannot start the process without taking into account the author, without making some decisions on who you think the audience will be. For example, if as a publisher you got a manuscript and thought, oh, this is a really great story, I'm going to publish it. If you haven't decided who it's for, no one would buy it because you wouldn't know what retailers to sell it to. If retailers don't know who they're supposed to be selling it to, they definitely wouldn't want to buy it. There's a huge demand within our culture for everything to be very specifically categorised, especially when it comes to age groups within children's books. And within everything, I think. It's very interesting how this age categorization is really what we're talking about, really. Like, in the same way as you have to see yourself as a man or a woman, and you have to see yourself as, you know, belonging to certain categories of being, um, adults are uncomfortable with seeing themselves as, you know, still growing up, as, you know, being able to enjoy and even need literature that's designed for children by publishers. But then, even if someone has no problem with the fact that they are still growing, it doesn't mean they haven't grown up and can't enjoy children's books. <laughs> uh, so there's a tension, basically, between um, the publisher's decision to categorise more and more and more and more. I mean, we get completely absurd age categorizations, right? Like 10 to 12 and yeah. 8 to 10. <laughs> if you go onto Amazon, the age categories within the children's section are so unbelievably narrow. You think, why is Holes only for 11 to 12 year olds? Why can't a 16 year old read it? So there's a tension between this fact on the one hand and on the other side, a more um, you know realistic view which is that people read what appeals to them and I think they're trapped between these two um, dynamics and um, it creates very complicated adults who feel the need to hide themselves and their interest in children's literature behind special covers or special book jackets. But if you did dispense with any kind of 
target audience, shall we say, that would make it very difficult for the consumer or the reader to actually locate anything. Because when you think, oh, I want to buy a book, it would be very difficult if things weren't categorised for you, for you to actually find it. Adults have a very interesting tendency to accaparate and decide that, you know, make their own um, things that they perceive to be to their taste. That is to say, if you're, if you think that something is good, if this thing fits with your values, if this thing uh, fits with your taste and your expectations about the world, your first reaction is, then surely it's not a children's book. Because if it was a children's book, it wouldn't speak to you because as an adult, you try and push away everything that is childish. Um, it's therefore, um, many adults, for example, when we talk about children's literature and we say, for example, Alice in Wonderland or Peter Pan or books like this, Generally, we're going to hear, but surely that's not a children's book. It's actually, so for example, a children, an adult's book parading off as a children's <laughs> book, which is the one thing we hear very often. Yeah, any book that adults acknowledge is good as its own merit does tend to be claimed by adults as their own yeah. rather than any acknowledgement they just might be enjoying a children's book. Alice. So that's a bit unfair because children don't do the same with adults' books. I mean, <laughs> children, even if they love, um, I don't know, Catcher in the Rye, they're not going to go, wait, this appeals to me. It must be a children's book. Whereas adults systematically claim that as their own. Yeah, you've read, well, we've both read books and books of literary criticism just claiming that there's no such thing as children's books. In a way, it depends how you define it. But what we're trying to show here is not only you shouldn't feel shame, in reading children's books but on top of that that you are missing out on a very important literary experience if you don't read children's books because there don't tend to be many novels for adults that focus on the same sort of transformative experiences or well the same sort of growing up experiences anyway as there are in children's books and adolescent books there's a lot more focus on uncertainty of the characters and how they grow into themselves and learn in a way that is usually absent in adults' books. And not forgetting as well that children's literature, uh, children's books very often follow a pattern that is quite close to mythical um, patterns, especially classic children's books, but also, you know, quite a lot of modern children's books. Um, and this is essentially things that you know, the adult mind always needs and always will need. Um, they will see things in a new light. And I think in this case, you know, the publishing industry could be seen as helping adults to get rid of, of a certain, you know, number of preconceptions and to actually pick up a book which they will enjoy for it, its own literary merit. If we are going to not adopt the cynical view that this is to get more revenue and a bigger slice of the market share. Okay, this is the academic idealistic view, perhaps, and you have the money view. Although, I mean, you know, money can be good. I mean, when you think about it, if J.K. Rowling hadn't been the first self-made uh, multi-millionaire woman, you know, thanks to books, she probably wouldn't have take, been taken as seriously as she is. In other words, money can make someone appear suddenly much more important and therefore raising the profile of children's literature as well. Oh, children's literature became massively more respected after J.K. Rowling's foray into it. There were a lot of books that would never have been published. Um, a lot more money went into marketing after that point, of course, because suddenly it was realised that there was a lot of money to be made in children's books, particularly the ones that appeal to adults. 
But on the other hand, Will Self wrote a very interesting article in, I think it was The Spectator the other week, about Harry Potter and how he thinks it reflects a more widespread social trend of childhood lasting much longer and extending right into the 20s and 30s in a way that it never has before. But if that's the case, then why deprive yourself of this experience? (laughs) Definitely. So... Basically, what we're trying to do in this show is really to convince you that there is a lot to be found in children's literature that cannot be found in adults' literature. We really want to um, encourage you to look at the books for yourself and read them and tell us what you think about them. Books like Halls, for example, by Louis Sacha or The Giver by Lois Lowry are incredible examples of teenage literature that can appeal to absolutely everyone as well as children's books containing a lot of things that isn't found in adult literature I think we're also trying to convince you that children's books also contain a lot of things that are found in adult literature that you didn't think would be found in children's literature they aren't they aren't all innocent and um, cute. Sac- saccharine cute. They aren't all Beatrix Potter. There are some very challenging, edgy, thought, really thought-provoking books available. In fact, there's about as wide a variety of books on offer as there are in adult publishing. So to conclude our discussion of the blurring of boundaries between children's literature and adult literature, I would say that publishers are already aware of how awesome a lot of children's books are. Are you? And um, now it's another feature of our podcast, which for the moment has two features, but I promise it will have more in the future. Yeah, we'll be a lot better, we promise. (laughs) And that's the book review. Okay, so this is the review of the day and today I'm going to review the book Numbers by Rachel Ward published by Chicken House in 2010 and Numbers is a young adult novel okay so what's Numbers about it's about a 15 year old called Jem who sees numbers in people's eyes for example 1912 2048 and these numbers are their date of death as she realized on the day her heroin addict of a mother died of an overdose so this is a very cheery book because of this Jem doesn't make that many friends until she meets a, she meets a very smelly guy called Spider who's due to die in three months exactly and one day as they wait in the queue for the London Eye she sees that everyone around them has the same numbers and it's today what's gonna happen i think it's the best idea for a ya novel i've ever seen or perhaps ever it's a very 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 ya novel it has lots of the f word and the s word everywhere and a lot of steamy sex in the hay and at the end we have one of the best cliffhangers i've ever read in a in a young adult novel which is very good for rachel ward of course since there's a second book and even a third book overall i think it's fun ya very action-packed with a brilliant concept premise and I'd say even though it's not the book of the year, I think if you're going on a three-hour train journey, you have to pick it up. These book reviews are tied in with the book group we'd like to run from our blog. On our blog, you will find lots of extra posts and extra book reviews. And at the end of each podcast, we're um, going to announce the next book that we will be reviewing in the next podcast, and if you're still following me. Um, and that will give you the opportunity, hopefully, we'll give you a whole month to read this book and perhaps to give us your opinion um, on kidyounotpodcast.com. And thanks to these comments, uh, they will hopefully enrich our reviews and we'll be able to talk about the books uh, with all your wise insight. And the book that we've chosen for next time is... 
John Newman's Mimi. Now don't be put off, it's very short, so no one has an excuse to not read it. And we'll put a link on the on the blog towards um, retailers who might have it, and by that we mean actual bookshops. Please go to our blog, please post comments, uh, please ask us questions that we can answer in the next episodes, um, give us suggestions, what can we improve, what is absolutely perfect about the podcast already are there any themes or concepts that you'd like discussed in future episodes do you disagree profoundly with us as long as you say it smartly it's fine (laughs) okay to conclude i think we can look forward to a next episode on quality quality what is quality in a children's book why is there trash and why is there trash (laughs) that's what my teacher would have said sounds like the problem of evil (laughs) um why have people got such a problem with trashy books what is a trashy book what is a good book absolutely and that's what we're gonna discuss next time if you have a very strong opinion on this and you want to let us know let us know on kidyounotpodcast.com Until then, have fun and read plenty of children's literature. Bye. Bye.